Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. Let me tell you a little bit about tonight's program. Tonight, we're going to explore an incurable widespread global virus in response to one of your emails. We'll also talk about how dogs are advancing cancer care by leaps and bounds and licks and wags, of course. We'll talk about some surprising connections between bone health and the microbiome. And, of course, we'll have answers to your phone calls and your emails. Uh, We're going to start off with an email. This one came to the AskDrDawn.com website. You can send an email anytime. The notion takes your head by going to AskDrDawn.com and clicking the Contact Us button. And uh, you don't actually have to fill in any of those fields. You can just say you're anonymous. Uh, But I do appreciate when you do let me know who you are. I will always just use your first name and location. This one comes from Kelly in Santa Cruz. Subject, Hepatitis B Vaccination. Hi, Dr. Don. My daughter just had a baby three weeks early, and I was surprised he was given a Hep B vaccination one day after birth. Is this a new recommendation? I'm not anti-vax, but this seems early, and is this vaccination necessary so young? Your thoughts? Well, Kelly, let's start out with, uh, is it necessary so young? There's a very good reason to do it very, very early. Uh, and I'm going to explain that to you. It's not a new recommendation, actually. It goes back to 1991. So let's take a few moments and talk about uh, hepatitis B. Uh, first of all, there's no cure. Most infections are acute and self-limiting, but uh, it can go sideways about 5% of the time in adults and go chronic. The rate of it going sideways in infants, particularly in newborns, is much, much higher. They call hepatitis B the silent killer because most people don't have it uh, or don't know they have it until it's too late to treat. Uh, hepatitis B, vac- that is to say, treat with vaccines and globulin, hepatitis B antibody. Uh, the hepatitis B virus, unfortunately, can live on surfaces at room temperature for up to seven days. And a it doesn't take much. A very, very small, tiny drop, for example, of dried blood from someone who has active virus in their system can, well, it can get you. And prior to the invention of the vaccine, when doctors were out there, you know, practicing medicine, nurses were out there practicing medicine, Uh, We were scared of this virus. And just so you know, there's a lot of people walking around. The World Health Organization says 400 million people worldwide. That's a lot of people chronically infected and therefore chronically infectious. One in 12 Asians Americans are infected with hep B virus, and most do not know that they're infected. Uh, Hep B maternal child transmissions happen all the time, 
and this is from chronic carriers who then get pregnant and have a baby, it happens at birth, not through the placenta. The placenta is protective. So a large percentage of the people of Asia have chronic hepatitis B, and most of those countries have double to triple the rate of a type of liver cancer called hepatocellular carcinoma. Uh, We've got 80,000 people getting infected with hep B every year in the United States. Sure, a lot of them are drug users or um, uh, engaging in unsafe behaviors of one kind or another, but not all of them. And uh, sometimes the exposure can occur, uh, well, let's say, really accidentally. Now, what is the reason for hepatitis B vaccination in very young infants? You know, really, it's basically cancer uh, prevention. The babies are protected in utero, as I just said, but they get it at birth from maternal blood. And hepatitis B is very, very contagious. Let me give you some examples of that. Uh, So, In Rhode Island, there were 35 patients of a certain acupuncturist who all became infected with hepatitis B virus. Uh, There was one patient in the practice who was positive, and the investigators at the CDC were never able to figure out whether it was inadequately sterilized needles or whether the acupuncturist didn't wash their hands uh, and got blood on them. It really was not known, but 35 patients, that's a lot of people. In uh, the CDC also reported a case where a four-year-old boy in a daycare developed acute hepatitis B, and there was another child at the center who had a history of biting and scratching, a behavioral problem that is frequently found in daycares as well as high schools, Uh, and that person was chronically infected, so presumably uh, they gave it uh, that way, there's a case in in Australia where they actually used molecular fingerprinting to prove daycare transmission. A child uh, became chronically infected, uh, and they had a history of biting, and they infected another child at that same daycare center, and they could tell it was the same exact version of the virus because... Well, the viruses mutate, but if you've got an exact match, you've got a line of transmission there. And uh, there was an incident 30 years, 20 years ago in a Mississippi nursing home where they were going around checking their diabetics and um, the uh, people who were getting finger sticks got hepatitis. Now, they were changing the needle but some blood got into the spring-loaded barrel of the finger stick device. They were using that finger stick device for multiple people. And that's how they transmitted the virus. So that's one of that's the main reason why we really think that we need to vaccinate children because of this possibility of uh, maternal transfer. I want to spend some times just talking about the challenge here. Besides it's being so contagious, people walk around with the virus, they don't feel it, they aren't yellow, and we're not 
we're not routinely testing every person who rolls in to have a baby. And yet, given that they could pick it up in the community, that is a concern. There's a about a two-week blackout period after a person is infected and has active virus in their system before they're going to be picked up by an antibody test. And we don't do active virus testing because with viral DNA because it's expensive. So you can have it be infectious and still not read positive. Take this for an example. This is a hypothetical. A pregnant woman visits the dentist two weeks prior to delivery. She she's, uh, receives uh, care, but one instrument was inadequately sterilized. Let's say there was a power failure during the sterilization cycle two days earlier. So two weeks later, she delivers a healthy baby, but during the delivery, the virus is transmitted to her infant. Infants do not show classic symptoms, but they very probably will develop a lifelong chronic disease. And here's the rub. People with chronic hep B virus have a 25 to 45% risk of liver cancer in their lifetime. It's We're going to dive deep here a little bit uh, just to see how crazy and evil this virus actually is. Uh, it leads to hepatitis it leads to hepatic cancer or liver cancer through multiple mechanisms. You could really say that hepatitis B lights the fire and then fans the flame on uh, on the fire itself. It's estimated that about somewhere between half and three quarters of liver cancer worldwide is due to hepatitis B virus. That's a lot of cancer. And it's because of the long smoldering inflammation from fighting the virus, chronic healing, which occurs after chronic injury, favors uh, excessive replication of growth-promoting genes, and excess replications equals more mutations. And when you mutate these growth-promoting genes, or the, then you can get problems with their function. For example, you can get loss of function mutations in tumor suppressor genes, and you can get activation, more function, in the oncogenes, which typically code for faster growth, less stability, more migration uh, factors, and uh, a tendency to get loose in the bloodstream and go somewhere. Uh, All of these things, by the way, they call oncogenes, but they're also genes that are always active in early embryological development because an embryo develops with all of those factors, right? The cells don't stick together. They migrate off and do their own thing. They are mobile. They, uh, it, it's all, and they grow rapidly. That's all the stuff we need when we're an embryo that we don't need when we're an adult animal. In addition, just to make it more fun, the virus likes to integrate, kind of like herpes virus or uh, or uh, varicella virus. It likes to uh, integrate into the human chromosome, and this just randomly breaks sequences and mutates the cells that are infected very rapidly, uh, killing many cells but breaking others. And ironically, uh, one of the easiest places for the hepatitis C virus to open and insert itself is in the promoter 
region for telomerase, uh, transcriptase. Now, telomerase is the enzyme that lengthens the telomeres on the chromosomes. And a lot of longevity research has been looking at can we lengthen telomeres without increasing cancer? Well, here's why. This is a classic example of make more telomeres and get more immortal cell lines, which is kind of a definition of cancer. Hep C also makes microRNAs. We've talked about those on the shows. Those are, those are being made uh, by the virus hijacking the cellular apparatus and making copies of itself, but it makes these microRNAs that actually attach to and interfere with major human cellular regulatory pathways that are designed to control rampant cell division. So yet another way that you torpedo the ability of the immune system, uh, or rather the, the system to protect itself. This isn't, we haven't gotten into the immune system effects. We're still on the genes. Uh, Hep B also impacts methylation, which is the silencing uh, or activation of genes, uh, and it does it in ways that promote cancer. Hep B also alters the gut microbiome. After all, the liver is part of the gut, and it does it in a way that amplifies liver inflammation. So not only is the liver inflamed from fighting an infection, it's also getting a lot of inflammatory signals in the form of inflammatory lipopolysaccharides from the bacteria over in the microbiome. Over time, the virus actually breaks the immune system itself. Certain fragments of the hep B virus directly inhibit the activation of NK uh, cell, cells, that's the natural killer cells that wander around looking for cancer and keep us safe. Uh, other fragments inhibit T cells directly, sort of down-regulate them, and other fragments still kill the dendritic cells, the antigen-presenting cells that teach the baby T cells how to attack, and how to be a predator and attack a particular marker. So how you kill the cells that teach the immune system to attack the virus. So you can see how evolved and evil this virus is. It doesn't kill us for a very long time, and it allows us to spread it as vectors. So, yeah, we should wipe this puppy out and vaccinate, you know, vaccination, if we could do it globally would wipe this out. And the richer countries have been bringing down their their liver cancer rates a lot in Asia by vaccinating their populations. Uh, Thailand still has very high levels. Cambodia, Laos, Japan is dropping a lot because they're, you know, they're a first world nation and they can, they have the healthcare structure to go out and vaccinate. But it needs to be done early. So vaccination of infants when I first uh, thought about this, I was a little creeped out about po- about vaccinating a one-day-old baby. But now I hope, as I came to understand, I hope you will come to understand, my audience, that this is actually a really, really good idea. Our next story is about man's best friend. I'm going through dog withdrawal right now. My beloved spooky past back in November. And 
I really, really miss my friend. And, and I am one of those creepy people who approaches anybody with a dog and says, oh, can I pet him? And, oh, who, you know, is it a boy or a girl? And how old is it? And what's his name? And I just, uh, I'm a sucker for a puppy or an older dog or anything with the appropriate anatomical structures. I just miss my dog. Anyway, sometimes dogs die because they get cancer, and that's very sad, but it also, in our case, offers an opportunity to shine a light on some real successes with canine-human collaboration that benefits both. Dogs get osteosarcoma. This is a type of bone cancer that uh, is very malignant at a much higher rate, maybe 10 times the rate that humans get it. It's a rare cancer in us. There are only really like 26,000 new cases annually worldwide, but treatment hasn't been getting anywhere for 35 years. Recently, however, Fido uh, may have fetched a new highly effective therapy for this dreaded disease. Dogs are much more like humans than mice, and mice, of course, are the laboratory animal of choice in medical research uh, because, well, they're mammals, they're small, they're cheap to feed, and they're close enough to give us a start. But they're also very different. Lab mice are typically a single genetic strain. They're biologically quite identical. They eat mouse food, and uh, that's a perfectly tuned chow that has just everything they need nutritionally. So from a nutrient standpoint, they're probably way better fed than dogs or humans, but I bet our food tastes better. And dogs live with us. Also, dogs are highly genetically variable. Go to a dog park and look around, unlike the lab mice. Uh, Dogs and humans live in the same environments, and we often eat the same food. And most of all, doctors develop cancer much the way we do, randomly, rather than having it induced in a controlled experimental setting. So they're a natural biological experiment that is leading some really amazing recent discoveries, particularly in osteosarcoma. Veterinary oncologists recently discovered that Combining a common blood pressure drug, losartan, with a common cancer drug, tocerinib, was a potent combo that stopped osteosarcoma in its tracks in over 50% of the canine subjects who got the treatment. In another lab, canine research led to the discovery that making a vaccine against a common bacterial infection, listeria monocytogenes, which is primarily an intestinal infection, uh, but it sometimes stimulates the, the immune system in dogs to seek out and destroy osteosarcoma cells that have already metastasized and do this much more efficiently. Uh, both of these have been moved to human trials for osteosarcoma and are showing real benefit. I didn't say this earlier, but I want to mention it. Osteosarcoma is a children's cancer. 
it attacks the growing bone. And so it's particularly tragic that this rare and difficult-to-treat cancer takes children from us. When we examine the cancers that our four-legged friends get at a molecular level, we find the same kinds of mutations in their cancers, and they respond similarly to the new biological agents that have been developed. And it's simplifying the search for new uses for old drugs or combinations of old drugs and new, new drugs, which is also being greatly aided by artificial intelligence, just really being helping us to look at what's the structure of the molecule and does it have a high probability of fitting with this other molecule. Imagine a shape with positive and negative charges. Now imagine building the opposite shape, the the uh, negative shape, if you will, like making a mold of that object and putting a negative charge where every positive charge is and a positive charge where every negative charge is so that they come together in solution and stick together because of those electrostatic charges. That's how protein engineering works. And if we can target proteins that are in the cancer but not in normal cells, we have a magic bullet that lets us really hone in on killing what we want to kill, not just like old-fashioned chemotherapy, killing everything that's, well, killing everything that's growing quickly, which is why the old-fashioned chemotherapy had those very bad gastrointestinal side effects, for example. Moving along, we're, con- we're going to connect uh, bone and gut health, as promised in my introduction. Did you know that bone-related disorders such as osteoporosis, rheumatoid arthritis, and osteoarthritis have been associated with dysbiosis of gut micro, uh, of the gut microbiome. In other words, if you've got pathogenic or potentially pathogenic or what we like to call in the, the field dysbiotic bacteria instead of the healthy probiotic bacteria, you have higher rates of these diseases. And an increased prevalence and development risk of osteoporosis is reported in patients with chronic disease like inflammatory bowel disease. So the Crohn's patients, the ulcerative colitis patients, the celiac patients are also at much increased uh, risk. Partly that one's because the damage that the inflammation does to their gut prevents them from being able to absorb uh, the calcium from their damaged wall. But it's also nutrient absorption and metabolite synthesis. It's also regulatory hormones. There's a great deal going on to the gut that impacts the bone remodeling cycle. And when that cycle's imbalanced, if resorption rates outpace formation, over time, things can shift. Now, while we're here, I do want to point out something about reverse osmosis water, that um, RO water systems are becoming very popular as people seek to remove pollutants from their food. But don't forget, reverse osmosis also removes calcium and magnesium. So you need those nutrients 
And there is good data showing that people who drink mineral water or who drink hard water have stronger uh, bones and less osteoporosis. So if you're doing what I do, which is basically take my well water and then run it through a reverse osmosis system, uh, or you're doing that with city water, you do need to make sure that you're doing something to add back that calcium, magnesium, and phosphorus. And I was now we're going to talk about bacteria. Bacteria actually promote, certain ones do, the intake of calcium, magnesium, and phosphorus. And during fermentation, it's how they how they eat, the, the microbes produce a lot of bioactive compounds that are important for bone health. Listeners on this show will have heard me talk a lot about the importance of vitamin K. Well, vitamin K is manufactured by your intestinal microbiomes. If you're lucky, you've got the ones that will make it for you. But we actually give a vitamin K shot, speaking of sticking needles into newborns, uh, we give a vitamin K shot to newborns because they don't yet have that microbiome to produce vitamin K and they have a tendency to bleed. So it's particularly important, especially in preemies, that they get that extra vitamin K. Now the fermentation products of Fiber by gut bacteria are called short-chain fatty acids. Turns out, and I did not know this before I researched this for the show, they play a regulatory role in osteocyte metabolism and bone mass. So studies have indicated that short-chain fatty acids like butyrate inhibit bone reabsorption through the regulation of osteoclast differentiation. In other words, osteoclasts, those are the cells that break down bone. They are slowed down in their development by these short-chain fatty acids. Uh, one of the particularly abundant ones, butyrate, which is the best of, the, of them to have, is believed to actually promote osteoblast. Those are the bone-building cells promote their production and differentiation so speeds up the speeds them up and stimulates uh, the formation of these little mineralized nodules that begin in cartilage to support bone growth so think about a seed crystal uh, the butyrate actually stimulates the formation of that so that the mineralization can occur around that little nidus seed uh, butyrate also directly stimulates uh, osteoblast uh, activation, and it does this through regulation of Tregs, that's the regulatory T cells. So uh, it turns out it's actually important for parathyroid hormone. If you don't have butyrate, parathyroid hormone isn't able to stimulate bone formation uh, and build up those bone marrow Tregs that are actually not just regulating the immune system, they're actually regulating bone production. So it's wheels within wheels within wheels, all coming from something that's produced by your microbiome that you can't make. I will say that you can make, uh, you can eat it, but butyrate is very high in butter, and it's also found in ghee, uh, Fiber is, of course, the raw material for making these short-chain fatty acids, as I already said. So 
you can just eat a lot of fiber and you'll make plenty of the good stuff. Research has also turned up that some of the hormones that are made by the lining of the gut are important in bone homeostasis. So there was a small crossover trial that looked at after eating, it's postprandial associations between two bone remodeling biomarkers uh, and gut hormones. So they're looking essentially at a protein that can be found in the urine after you break down bone. And if you are recycling that protein and building bone up as fast as you break it down, then you will see that protein in the urine drop. Uh, If you are breaking it down faster than you're building it, you'll see that protein rise. So it turns out that uh, GIP, which is insulin uh, nootropic polypeptide, is uh, and also GLP-1. Now, we've all heard about GLP-1 lately, glucagon-like peptide 1, because that's the thing that is the weight loss craze, right? The uh, Ozempic, the uh, Montjaro, they increase GLP-1, and GLP-1 is having its moment in the limelight. It's 15 minutes of fame, if you will. Maybe it'll last longer than 15 minutes, because it's possible that uh, Ozempic and Montjaro might actually end up as uh, either treatments or prevention agents for osteoporosis. So another benefit, if you will, to an agent. I think we're just getting started playing around with these gut hormones. We've only just now, uh, well, we've identified them about 20 years ago. I learned about, well, 30 years ago, I learned about them in medical school. But what they did and how to weaponize them, that's just happened recently, but it's extremely exciting. There's a lot you can do with diet to improve the health of your bones. And this was uh, an article that came out in 2022. It was a systemic review and a meta-analysis. And they looked at eight different studies with 13,000 participants. And they looked at adherence to the Mediterranean diet. And they found that the Mediterranean diet specifically caused significant increases in bone mass density at the spine and the hip and the whole body. So when you eat plant-based foods and their soluble fibers, you promote the right gut microbiome and you make these healthy beneficial metabolites like vitamin K and short-chain fatty acids. And the prebiotics that are present in these foods are used by the gut uh, microbia so uh, these prebiotics naturally exist in fruits. They're mostly vegetables, onions, fruits, bananas, asparagus, Jerusalem artichokes or sunchokes. And the health-like benefit of this is huge because it promotes the growth of the good bacteria, specifically bifidobacterium and lactobacillus. And they also promote uh, improved barrier functioning so you don't you cure the leaky gut with these foods and you increase your absorption of calcium and magnesium so can we treat osteoporosis with probiotics of course naturally medical science wants to flip it on its head diet well that's too hard let's 
let's find something we can put in a pill and sell, right? That's how it works. Well, probiotic consumption in one study, primarily lactobacillus, and this was women 50 years or older, uh, in, had benefits in serum calcium levels, urinary calcium levels went down, parathyroid hormone levels went up, but we don't yet have data proving that it increases the density because that takes a while and the studies didn't run long enough. It is, however, very promising and very exciting. So a quick one for you, but definitely health news you can, lo- you can use. Which exercise is the most effective for lowering blood pressure? This result certainly surprised me. Uh, the study is, it was a systematic review. This is where they looked at a large number of studies. Uh, let's see. Everything that was published between 1990 and February 2023, and they had some criteria. People had to do an exercise invent, uh, intervention of two weeks or greater, and they had to have a non-intervention control group, and they had to look at systolic and diastolic blood pressure. They found 250 studies in that period of time, uh, and they these studies were successful. They showed that exercise reduced blood pressure, but they wanted to compare them and ask the question, which exercise did the most for what? So what they found were very significant uh, reductions in with aerobic exercise, about uh, minus five points on the systolic and two, two and a half on the diastolic. Uh, dynamic resistance training actually was about was five, was five points on the systolic and about three points on the uh, diastolic. Combined training got us a six when you could, did both of them on the systolic blood pressure. That's starting to look like what we can ex- would reasonably expect from a drug. High-intensity interval training, or HIT, not quite so good, 4 and 2.5. Isometric exercise training, on the other hand, wow, minus 8.24 on that systolic blood pressure. So for you isolated systolic BP people out there, you might want to be thinking about that. And it got a pretty good, it also won in the diastolic blood pressure coming in at minus four, which was the best of the crew. Uh, when they looked at it, when they looked at the rank order of effectiveness, isometric exercise training com- came first, followed up by combined training, and then the rest of the pack, dynamic, aerobic, and high-intensity interval, basically were all tied for third place. So they looked carefully, and what they recommend is isometric wall squat to bring down that systolic blood pressure. So what that means is knees at at a 90-degree angle, hips at a 90-degree angle, and your basically back is pushed against a wall, and you stand there for as long as you can do it, and then you stand up and move around, and then you do it again. And you do that a bunch of times, and you can lower your blood pressure quite a bit, and it's a persistent benefit. So I think that's news you can use. We're now going to 
move to the brave new world of alternative proteins. Well, let me ask you, would you eat a burger enriched with mealworms? Would you eat fake bacon sliced from a massive fermented fungi or milk proteins that were extruded by bacteria? Well, maybe you already have. Dozens of companies are now banking on these alternatives to animal protein becoming a regular part of your diet. Now, the average person in wealthy countries consumes about around 100 grams of protein per day. People require about 50 at a minimum. You know, we're going to talk about the minimum daily requirement to avoid a deficiency disease. It's about 50 grams. But I'm a big fan of protein, and I tell people to eat one and a half times their body weight in kilograms if they're over 50 in order to maintain their muscle mass, partly because their absorption declines as they age. And if you want to maintain the muscle mass, you definitely don't want to be recycling your own muscle mass to uh, provide in, to pro- provide raw material for uh, your body to make other things. You want that raw material coming you know, down the chute, so to speak. So we'd like to change where that meat comes from. There's a lot of reasons. The average American eats 120 kilograms of meat a year. And as, con- as, the, as, the, as the tide rises for wealth across the world, and we are getting richer and the, the standard of living is rising and the food availability is improving despite pockets where it's tragically not that case. But if you look at China, where there have been several famines in uh, my lifetime, uh, the amount of meat that has that is eaten has exploded 15-fold since 1960. It puts a lot of pressure on the planet. And if we want to get to sustainability, we're going to have to change our diet. Some One study uh, by the EAT Lancet Commission concluded that we'd have to uh, slash the amount of red meat produced by conventional methods by about 75% and double the production of fruit, beans, nuts. Well, could we do it? Well, we could certainly make a dent in global warming. One study found that replacing 20% of global ruminant meat, that's beef mostly, uh, a little bit, I guess goats are also technically ruminants, I think, um, with uh, microbial protein alternatives would have annual deforestation. And we definitely want that. We'd like to keep the carbon in the trees and out of the air. So uh, let's talk about the hunt for um, the protein of the future. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of alternatives here, cultured beef, uh, algae, insects, uh, soy, jackfruit, fungi. Uh, the health benefits are compelling. Uh, the winners, peas and mycoprotein, in, in terms of health benefits, uh, because they have less cholesterol, salt, lower fiber, uh, lower fat, all of the good things, uh, higher protein to everything else ratios, would cut mortality in population by about 2.5%. Uh, that's a substantial amount. 
So what are some of the methods? Let's talk about them. Cultured meat. You can now grow meat in a laboratory. Uh, they find the cell lines. They use them as starters. They grow the cells in bioreactors. Re- There's some talk of even 3D printing the results so that you can get the right texture. Uh, and the United States has two, it gave two cultured meat products the green light uh, in uh, this June. The problem here is that it takes a lot of energy, but its land and water use is extremely low. So its carbon footprint is basically about the same as that of poultry, and it's one-tenth that of beef cattle. So if we can make it a convincing substitute, it would be a real win. Soy has been an early uh, leader in plant-based products, but pea proteins are rising fast, and part of that's because of the GMO soy issues, the allergens, and also concerns about the soy isoflavones, a concern I don't generally share except in situations where people are on hormone deprivation therapy for breast cancer or prostate cancer, in which case I actually think they probably should avoid soy because the molecules can have a weak uh, growth stimulation effect in those cancers. But there's all sorts of uh, highly processed versions of soy that try to get the texture of uh, of and taste of meat, but they throw a lot of stuff in there that turn them into frankenfoods, flavor enhancers, sugars, colors, masking agents. Uh, these affect the nutrition, but they also throw a lot of baggage into those foods that make them, in my opinion, less than thoroughly healthy. A few researchers are looking at tailoring crops, so growing peas or sorghum that will be ideal for making plant-based meats because they wouldn't have require the taste improving or the taste modification additives. Uh, There's also some really interesting things going on with recombinant proteins and bacteria. Uh, rennet, which used to be, which is used in cheese making, used to be derived from the stomach of calves. Uh, it curdles the milk and basically sets the cheese, as it's called. They now are turned out by uh, genetically modified microbes. Even in the EU, where GM technology is frowned upon, the cheese we must have the cheese. So they um, they they decided GM was okay on. Uh, if it's going to make us some cheese. Also, of course, it's a very small amount that uh, we're talking about. There's a company called Perfect Day in Berkeley that uses a fungus uh, that's been programmed to make beta-lactoglobulin. This is cow whey protein, and they make animal-free milk products. And I did not know this. This is the Brave Robot ice cream people. So um, Possible Foods, of course, is using a... uh, bacteria to pump out soy uh, leg hemoglobin, which is a heme alternative. They use that to give the flavor of heme in its fake burger. And uh, they're selling burgers uh, internationally. They're um, companies making milk casein proteins, egg white proteins, muscle myoglobin, and even human breast milk proteins now. So we've got microbes out there and growing a lot of interesting stuff for us. And uh, this is really intriguing.
The next section of this report is going to be called From Beer to Bacon. Uh, there's a, there are particularly filamentous fungi that when you ferment them, they produce a high-fiber, high-protein food with a texture that's similar to that of a chicken breast. It's, uh, it's one version uh, is made from Fusarium venatum, and it was found in 1967 uh, in an English garden, and it's uh, sold as corn. Uh, it's here, been in here in the United States for about 20 years. There's a company called Nature's Find in Chicago that uses a different fusarium. This fungus was originally found in Yellowstone Park, in uh, presumably in a hot spring. Uh, they use it to make meatless patties and a cream cheese alternative. And there's another dozen companies that are developing mycoprotein products. Uh, there's uh, one that makes a fungi-based bacon alternative. Now, you need to feed the fungi sugar uh, to grow the mycoprotein. And uh, some products use a little bit of egg, but in the search for, you know, a, <laughs> a, a true circle of life, uh, some researchers are working on feeding uh, agricultural waste brewing products from beer making spent grain to the fungi, and turns out Mikey likes it. So as I said, we're moving from beer to bacon and reusing and recycling as we go. Now, of course, seaweeds are traditional food ingredient in many cultures, and there's a whole lot of kelp uh, being grown because it helps sequester carbon, and there are kelp farms that are getting subsidized out there, particularly red algae supplements. Uh, if you harvest them and give them to cows, they reduce methane burps from cattle by more than 80%. I can sort of see that coming out to be uh, useful for me when I'm treating people who have uh, methane-related social issues, shall we say. Uh, spirulina can be used in protein powders, and it, you can make a you can make a uh, flour out of it. Uh, but the problem is, it tastes a little fishy, so they're working on genetically modifying that. And there are some bacteria that can actually make protein from carbon dioxide if you feed them hydrogen gas. They can take carbon dioxide out of the air, and with, with enough hydrogen, they can make protein, which is just crazy. And uh, there's a company in Finland doing exactly that. They're selling this protein powder called Solene in Singapore and uh, trying to get it to uh, the EU. There's a company called Callista in San Mateo that y uses uh, methane-munching bacteria to produce feed kind. It's a protein that they turn into fish food. And, uh, of course, there's insects. We're just coming around. This, this Insects are my favorite because I, uh, I sort of see myself as a carnivore. I guess carne means meat. So maybe, you know, plant, it isn't really a meat. But on the other hand, if you, if you can print it or grow it, uh, I'm, I'm down with it. So not that I dislike soy, but the idea of eating cr crickets and grasshoppers uh, fly larvae and mealworms, for some reason, just really appeals to me. And the EU makes 6,000 tons of insect protein 
each year they have a bug-based burger that's made from dried yellow mealworms. Uh, they have flowers made from locusts and crickets. And uh, the cost of in- insects are actually at the moment a bit more expensive to produce, much more pricey than algae, chicken, or tofu. It's interesting that insects are more expensive than chicken, but I guess it's the per- I guess it's the uh, added cost of the pr- of the um, processing. Anyway, we all need to eat re- uh, less red meat. We all need to look at our 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 fat, our our salt, our fiber. Get more fiber and less salt and fat. We need to really, really look at what we could do to the global food system. Uh, the global food system releases about 14 gigatons of green co- uh, greenhouse gases annually. That's one quarter of total emissions. If we could stop one quarter of total emissions, uh, we we could meet those goals without even breathing hard. Release, if we replaced 10% of global meat consumption with alternatives, we could save one gigaton. We could offset all of the carbon that's put out every year by the entire aviation industry. You know, you could say that it's all on the corporations, but it isn't. We can all contribute in our own way, and being open to these alternative food sources is one of the ways that we could all make a very big difference in the future. So I hope that the next time you're confronted with an unfamiliar food made from something you wouldn't have thought of eating in the past, you'll give it a try. Have an open mind and an open mouth and decide what you think. Hey. You can always spit it out if you don't like it. Let's talk about supply chain shortages. We have had some significant shortages of key medicines and other products for children. Most of you will remember the kerfuffle around infant formula, uh, but there are a number of drugs that have likewise seen problematic Shortages, And I want to emphasize that children represent a uniquely vulnerable group. So when you get a supply chain disruption there, you can't just easily pivot to something else because they have unique needs. Now, in the fall of 2022, we all got a big surprise because there was a shortage of children's formulations of common analgesics. And this was during the triple-demic, right? The tridemic of influenza, RSV, and COVID-19 when our masks all came off and we relaxed in 2022. And there were very high respiratory rates among children because they had been isolated and not exposed. So they all got to get these, and sometimes they got two or three of them at once. And this was a big deal. The, the, in, in fact, the, the FDA looked at the situation and is working with manufacturers, but it also issued guidance for the compounding of an oral suspension of ibuprofen by compounding pharmacies the next time there's a shortage because that wasn't something that was approved and that was something they could have done if they'd been able to. Uh, there's also 
uh, was a big shortage of amoxicillin last year. And the amoxicillin powder has been in short supply uh, and continues to be short in short supply. We talked about, we remembered formula, and I'm not going to go over that in detail except to remind you that uh, there were just two companies making all of the formula in the United States, and one of them had to shut down. And this dropped, uh, basically, it dropped the supply by uh, 43%. And we ended up buying formula from Europe in order to meet the shortfall because children, you know, babies got to eat. And switching them early has adverse side effects. There are 40 pediatric drugs on the drug shortage list, like us, and some of them are critical, like the albuterol sulfate inhalation solution that we use for acute asthma attacks, or the, uh, the or some of the seizure medications that we use. Uh, children are a surprisingly underserved population, and I think they have a special claim to to our protection and our. Co- uh, consideration, but the health system is: if you can't make a profit, you aren't going to do it. Pediatric hosp- ICU beds are less profitable, so many hospitals have closed their pediatric ICU uh, ICUs. And then, when there's an epidemic, you can't find children's beds in hospitals. That also happened last year. We need to force the pharmaceutical uh, force, entice, uh, incentivize the pharmaceutical companies to do better. We need to realize that we can't allow foreign pharmaceutical firms to supply 97% of our antibiotics, 95% of our ibuprofen, and 70% of our acetaminophen. We need to ask our government to do more, whether it's incentives or penalties or stockpiling. We should be able to expect the United States, to provide our children with what they need. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Don is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.